0: we will come back for the second. India have won the Test match. India have won the series. Going to get back for two. Hello
1: and welcome to a new episode of Eighty One All Out Podcast. This is Mahesh, your host for this episode. Uh, today we're going to be talking about all-rounders in Test cricket. Uh, it's a no-brainer why we're talking about it in the current context because Ben Stokes uh, with his compelling performances with both uh, bat and ball over the last few months as as we comparisons with some of the legends of the game, and rightfully so, we thought we will use this context to dig a little deeper about uh, the role of all-rounders in Test cricket, to uh, to make sense of them, to uh, figure out how to evaluate them, to talk about uh, pitfalls of uh, of typical narratives around all-rounders. Uh, I'm quite excited to talk about this with uh, two special guests today, uh, the founders of Crick Investigate. Uh, Investigate in cricket. Uh, it's a new initiative by uh, Two very passionate fans, one from Melbourne and one from London. Uh, You can follow them on Twitter. Uh, Their handle is at Crickvestigate. I'll link uh, the Twitter handle in the show notes as well. Um, So let me introduce them now. Rav from Melbourne, uh, uh, an engineering professional, but uh, more keen about cricket. Hi, Rav. Welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Mahesh. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Cheers. Cheers and Arj, a finance professional from London in the times of Brexit, uh, naturally more keen on cricket at the moment. Hi, Arj, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Mayesh, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Excellent, thanks a lot for joining us, guys. Uh, I know your handle has been quite busy uh, tweeting a lot of very, very interesting uh, numbers on, on all around us in, in cricket over the years, uh, and particularly the Ben Stokes phenomenon is, has uh, triggered a lot more conversation around it, which is, which is very good for us. Um, just to set the stage on on this, uh, I know all-rounders come in very many shapes and forms in cricket. Uh, personally, how how do you look at an all-rounder? How do you define an all-rounder? Is 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 that someone who can be picked uh, generally as a batsman or a bowler in a team because that's going to restrict a lot of people? Um, so just to just to get a sense, yeah.
2: So historically, uh, the people have taken the, uh, given the description that you've just given, where you know you can play in the side as either a batsman or a bowler. But as far as I'm concerned, that's a far too uh, strict a definition, because in history, you won't find many people who can do that. For me, uh, an all-rounder is someone who, in their weaker discipline, it's almost too good to be... Um, if your weaker discipline is uh, as a batsman, uh, you're, you're far too good to be a tailender. Uh, you're, you're regularly contributing. For example, uh, someone like a Richard Hadley as a bowling all-rounder. His batting wouldn't be good enough to bat in the top six, but his contributions are just too consistent to be not regarded as an all-rounder. Um, whereas someone like a, a Wasim Akram or a Mitchell Johnson is probably in that region where they're not quite all-rounders. Um, and if you take the flip side, a, a batting all-rounder, someone like a Jacques Callis, again, he, he didn't take that many wickets per test. He took less than two wickets per test, but he consistently bowled uh, for South Africa and uh, ended up with 296 wickets a reasonable average um, and he's certainly more than a part-timer um, and again in that sort of region between part-timers and uh, for batting all-rounders in the region between part-timers and full-time all-rounders you've got people like um, Wally Hammond Frank Worrell uh, more recently Sanat Jayasuriya in test matches um, those kind of players they were useful bowlers they, would, they could take you um you know, maybe a wicket per test, but not good enough to be full-time all-rounders. So for me, the contribution on the weaker discipline is, is too high to be ignored and too consistent to be ignored. That's how I kind
0: of define all-rounder. And, um, yeah, I agree with that um, 100%. And, um, and one other thing to remember is um, some of the greatest all-rounders managed to excel in both batting and bowling for a series or over a few seasons. Um, like you know, it's like they're top tier bowler and top tier batsman, but they couldn't really do that over an entire career. It's impossible to do that, and it may be possible for them to maintain the averages, but the contribution and the workload of two full time specialists—that's um, impossible to manage over a career. So, I agree that, like um, I've said, the secondary skills too good to be ignored. Um, so. That's pretty much the definition of all-round. I would say the primary skill is good enough to be um, as one of the top six batsmen or to, you know front-line top four bowlers, and the secondary skills right up there um, as a very very useful contribution.
1: Great, uh, thanks a lot for that. I think that sets the stage for uh, for our discussion going forward. Because if you restrict it to genuine all-rounders, then we are going to be talking about four or five people, and that's about it. Uh, yeah, so I'll probably take take on from there. Uh, to get your sense on, uh, on how do you assess all around us, but you were, both of you have been extremely busy crunching a lot of numbers in the recent days, so you, I'm really keen to hear, uh, hear some of your favorite metrics, and, and, of course, each metric has its own uh, pitfall as well. If you can elaborate on that.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, uh, one of the common metrics that we see um, on any kind of analysis is people take the very simplistic approach of doing taking a batting average minus, minus a bowling average, you know, looking at who's got the highest, um, when you take that, do that difference. Um, from my perspective, that measure is useful, but it's, it's far too biased towards uh, batting all-rounders. Because if you, if you think about it, um, let's take a, a batsman who averages 50, and let's say we equate a batsman who averages 50 with a bowler who averages 25. If that batsman who averages 50 improved his average to 55, um. It would be equivalent to the, bowl, the bowler, a 25 averaging bowler, improving his average to, to, say, 23. It wouldn't be the same as going from 25 to 20. So, this, because of the difference in the scales of the averages, you can't, I don't think you can simply do uh, one batting, batting average, uh, take batting average and subtract bowling average. Um, and some people look at the approach of taking a batting average and uh, dividing the uh, bowling average. Again, I'm not a huge fan of that because. Again, it'll buy, it's biased towards uh, batting all-rounders. You know, you could have a guy who averages fifty with the bat, um, forty with the ball, and he's equivalent to a guy who averages forty with the bat and thirty-two with the ball. But a guy who's a uh, batting all-rounder, averaging forty with the ball, probably isn't good enough to, wouldn't be good enough to be classified as an all-rounder. Um, so, for me, the, the metrics which you need to look at is you need to take into account the batting and bowling averages. But I also think you need to uh, bring into bring into that equation um, contribution. So wickets for match are very crucial um, if you're a bowler. For example, a player like uh, Hansi Konya is a good example. He, his bowling average is fantastic. it's 29. But he only took 43 wickets, less than wicket per test, far much less. So you can't just look at the average. You've got to bake in a contribution with bat and ball. So uh, runs per test and wickets per test. And if you combine that with the averages, I think at Vestigate we've, we've come up with a metric um, to sort of assess all around this. Um, I'll, I'll pass on to Rav and let him talk a bit about that.
0: Um, well, thanks, Aj. Yeah, so basically, like I'd said, um, averages are important. Um, you know, it reflects the individual brilliance. But you've got to look at the match contribution because at the end of the day, it's a team game. So how many runs per test and how many wickets per test are just as important as averages. And... Um, If I could touch on one really good example is uh, if you look at the batting averages of um, Ian Botham and Sean Pollock, there's hardly any difference. It's um, 33.5 and 32.3. But if you look at the number of runs they made per test match, Ian Botham made 51 runs per test and Pollock made 35 runs per test. So Botham's 16 extra runs is a much bigger contribution to the team. Um, so, um, I guess you cannot ignore the individual brilliance. So, we have to take averages into account. So, uh, when we developed the index, um, so we look, looked at three things, two primary things and one secondary thing. The two primary things were, for, for instance, for batting index, it's it takes into account the batting average and it takes into account the runs per test. And also added a secondary contributor for impact, which looks into Um, number of hundreds scored um, per innings, but also added an element of average batting position because um, if you look at it, like average batting position for Jack Callis is 3.9, so top four pretty much. For someone like Hadley, it's 7.8 or something, so it's eight. So uh, we made some adjustments for that, so that's how we developed our batting index. Similarly for the bowling index, Again, there was a secondary impact factor which takes into account the four wicket, five wicket holes, um, and also considers the bowling position. Uh, But the two primary factors, once again, is the bowling average and the wickets for test. So, um, and then we combined those two methods and uh, created an index. Um, And um, we picked about 10 players. Um, I mean, we looked at about Fifty to sixty players, but um, to talk about it in a little bit more depth, we picked about ten players. I'll quickly mention the names in the order of the, in the order they played: um, Keith Miller, Gary Sobers, Imran Khan, Tony Gregg, Richard Hadley, Ian Bertham, Kapil Dev, Sean Pollock, Jack Callis, and uh, for the modern fans, we picked Ben Stocks over Shaqib, just to keep it all like sort of pace bowling all rounders. Um, uh, all the service bold, both. Um, and a very good all rounder would have that index value of about seven and a half plus. And uh, really, really top class all rounders would have an index close to 10. Uh, pretty much most of them fall around that 10 mark. And uh, there were two or three exceptional all rounders who went um, reasonably above 10. Uh, that would be Imran Khan, 11. Uh, and Gary service, 12. And it sort of makes sense. No matter what you do, no matter what sort of scaling you use, uh, those two almost pretty much end up being the top two um, in all sort of metrics. Um, And you've got to keep in mind, this index looks at just the overall career. So just like the averages, um, it corresponds to the overall career. But if you want to look further against each opposition away, in difficult other countries, then you've got to just use the same equations to come up with the index. So, for Gary Service, the index would be higher against England, but would be a lot lower against New Zealand. So, I think uh,
1: the more we dig into, the more uh, we'll eventually end up with a SENA kind of bucket for uh, all-rounder index. And we certainly are not going to go there. Uh, but quite uh, quite interesting and quite uh, revealing as well. And I'm very glad that, uh, that uh, in fact, we addressed these pretty much straight away because uh, one of the most irritating screenshots that I've seen in 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 all of cricket pretty much is uh, when Callis, uh, I think, was about to retire. And there was this, uh, his batting record and bowling record were superimposed over, uh, you know, Sachin's and Z- Zahir Khan's as batsman and bowler. And, and this ridiculous comparison was was going around everywhere, which is quite irritating. Because, uh, uh, like like ours mentioned, uh, Callis probably takes less than two wickets per match, and there is no way in comparison to what Zach did. One in terms of the wickets per match, and two in terms of the amount of overs that he bowled, especially as the frontline new ball bowler. Uh, this nuance is absolutely lost when you take a, a stat like that and kind of mainstream it and dumb it down, which is one of the reasons
0: why we're doing this at, uh, in the first place. I'll just quickly add something to that, uh, since you mentioned the workload part. Um, you're right. Like, um, we didn't include that as part of the index because the contribution already takes workload into account. Um, but I still put together some uh, numbers. And um, if you look at the balls faced, um, battered, and the number of balls delivered, nobody comes anywhere near Gary Sobers. He played 400 deliveries per test matches, as in balled or battered. And I think the next best is um, um, Richard Hadley, 318. So it's like 20% ahead. And the, um, the most revealing thing, or the thing that still amazes me, although I've known this for a long time, is that every time I look at balls delivered per test match, Richard Hadley obviously has the highest number. You won't believe this. Gary Sobers is number two. He's delivered more deliveries than um, Dev, Imran Khan, uh, I know he Gary bowled both spin and pace but still he bowled more deliveries than Imran Khan or Kapil Dev or even Sean Pollock per test match it's unreal and the two lowest um, in terms of balls delivered were actually Callis and Ben Stokes they uh, Callis bowled pretty much half of what Sobers bowled for test match and Ben Stokes is not that much higher than Callis
1: very interesting. Just a related question. I know you might have the number on this as well. Uh, what was the bowling average, bowling position for for Sobel? Do you have the number on that?
0: Uh, yes. Uh, so, your average bowling position. So, we calculated this by um, just you know multiplying it and dividing the sums. Uh, average bowling position for Sobel was three and a half. So, so he
1: was comfortably a fourth bowler. He was. Uh, and then in a lot of occasions, he even opened the bowling. We know that, but he's comfortable with yeah, the football.
0: It, it is surprising to me. Um, there is an anecdote I might—I was thinking of sharing it uh, later, but I'll just quickly mention that uh, when uh, Tom Graveney, uh, you know, um, very good English batsman, um, was interviewed by—I um, can't remember who it he was—he was asked that who would he pick to bat for his life, and then uh, he just mentioned Sobers too much to the surprise of the interviewer because he expected Hutton to be the answer. And then he just added this one funny little anecdote saying that most of the English top-order batsmen actually wanted Sobus to make some runs because they didn't want him to take the new ball because he had this late, lethal um, swing. So that, like, you know, Trouble, Jeffrey Boycott, Kenny Barrington, uh, they were the most common um, victims of Sobus. And um, so, yeah... um, I am surprised when I found out it was 3.5, uh, but I guess it also made sense uh, because he made a lot of runs, which meant he probably bowled as number three or four for his um, team, I would imagine.
2: I mean, it's hard to find exact stats on this, but um, from what I've looked into, it's it's clear that Serb's um, spin bowling actually is what uh, affected his stats uh, a bit. I mean, I think as a pace bowler, he's certainly better than a 34 average, but... It's, it's hard to get stats of when he bowls spin and when he bowls pace.
0: Yeah, that's true. And um, the other thing is that oftentimes if he bowls spin, I can go into like match examples, but I will stay away from it. Our oh, 1966 um, Leeds test, I think I recently posted about it, um, is that when there was nothing happening with the pace bowling or swing, and then, and, you know, the batsmen settled in. The other ballers, all the Griffith, who were bowling at the time, didn't get wickets. That's when service tends to spin. So oftentimes, if he has to ball spin, which meant the batsmen are set and there weren't much happening. So uh, I strongly believe the stats for his pace bowling would be a lot superior to um, his spin bowling. Um, yeah, I'm fairly confident, but it's very hard to um, verify that.
1: So essentially, Sobers, the fast bowler, was the strike bowler. And Sobers, the spinner, was the one who made
2: things happen, is it? I think given Sobers' strike rate, <laughs> I'm not sure he made a lot of it happen with the spin. He was more of a container, I think. But um, I think the point about uh, the people who truly qualify as, as batting all-rounders uh, one fact that's important is that, with Callis as well, is that they, they didn't get to bowl in, in the favourable conditions. Um, they would often have to do the work um, when the ball was a bit older, uh, like Stokes is doing, doing at the moment. So, that has to be taken into account. But I, I totally agree, Maish. I mean, you can't make a comparison between Zahir Khan and Callis as a bowler. It's, it's, it's crazy. Um, and that's not to knock Callis. Callis is a fantastic player. The fact that a batsman of that quality is offering that with the ball is just an amazing achievement. But, but should people shouldn't um, sort of mislead, misinform by by equating his bowling to the effectiveness of, of, a, pri- of a strike bowler like Zahir Khan.
1: Yes, uh, and, and since Rav has talked a lot about Sobers and uh, it's a question that I wanted to ask him even uh, uh, during the middle of a lot of his Twitter threats, but, uh, but this is probably a good context for us to talk about it uh, as a theoretical framework as well. Uh, it's, it's one of my, one of my sort of firm beliefs that a bowling all-rounder uh, is a lot easier to fit into in the in the team game compared to a batting all-rounder, and, and the logic is fairly simple. Like like all of us know that a bowling all-rounder will definitely bat, and he doesn't have to disrupt the batting lineup for him to uh, you know utilize his skills. Whereas a batting all-rounder for his bowling skills to be uh, to, to make an impact. It has to come in the way of uh, the captain using the four mainstream bowlers in the first place. Sobers uh, is, of course, an exception. But if you look at someone like Callis or even Stokes, uh, you are effectively the fifth bowler. And in the current match, in fact, as we speak, uh, we are talking in the middle of uh, the first test between Pakistan and England. Stokes is even the sixth bowler. Uh, do, you, do you see fundamentally that a bowling all-rounder is more valuable to a team or, or, uh, or we are just making too much of, uh, of some exceptions?
2: No, I think, Maish, um, what you say is uh, generally correct. I, I personally prefer bowling all-rounders. Um, but I think the fact that our definition of all-rounders has already set quite a high threshold. So the batting, all, the, there, are very, there aren't that many batting all-rounders. The ones that we've given that role, such as Stokes, Tony Gregg, Callis, Sobers, have already met a criteria in their bowling, that they're bowling regularly. And um, just on, on Callis again... Um, his bowling was incredibly valuable to South Africa because um, you have to remember that South Africa, in their histories, um, after Huey Tayfield, they haven't had um, a regular spinner. Um, Paul Adams was effective for a short time, but in general, their spin bowling option hasn't been effective. So they've had, to, you know, they've had excellent opening bowlers. They've had Donald Pollock, um, you know, stain, Morkel, Philander, those kind of guys. Um, but Callis has often had to bowl very important um, spells uh, when the balls got older. Um, and And without the spinner to hold up the end, that fifth bowl has been invaluable for south Africa so i, I would I would say your general point about bowling all rounders i 'd agree with, um, but given the threshold that we 've set a strict threshold um, I would say i, I couldn 't necessarily say one was more valuable than the other. It would depend on the balance of the side I mean, as you said for for England, the fact that Ben Stokes is a batting all rounder um, is far more beneficial than if he was a bowling all-rounder because the English team's bowling is far stronger than their batting. Um, the opposite is true of Kapil Dev, for example. Kapil Dev, at the time he was bowling, he was India's best bowler. Uh, Indian bowling was a lot weaker than the Indian batting. So they needed Kapil Dev as a bowling all-rounder. If he was an equivalent quality batting all-rounder, he probably wouldn't have the same impact on Indian cricket. So it depends on the team balance. Um, but I think your point also holds true for people who don't quite make the all-rounder threshold. So, if you've got, uh, I'd rather have a, um, a bowler who could bat a bit like a Wasim Akram than have a batsman who could just turn his arm over. Um, so, yeah, yeah that, that would that be is, my that is,
1: Actually, that is my point. Of course, when you get into the elite list, the standards are so high, uh, the difference is not too much, let's say, between a Sobers and, and an Imran. Uh, but, let's just get out of this elite zone and talk uh, more about the uh, about how cricket is played and how a team uh, uh, gets its balance. Uh, let's say, for instance, India tried to play Sturbani for a while uh, as someone who could bat number six and also bowl a few overs in, in Test cricket, right? They did mm-hmm. that in England. Uh, they've tried yes. Hardik Pandya, for instance. Yeah. Uh, uh, so now these are fairly problematic sort of choices from a team balance perspective. But you take, let's say, even if you play Jadeja and uh, Ashwin, away they lend a lot more balance because their primary skill bowling is always going to be fully utilized and the batting will also be utilized because they are batting in their natural place but for you to bowl a Hardik or a Stuart Binney you are necessarily taking overs out of the mainstream frontline bowlers.
0: Um, You could talk a lot more about this but I just want to add one thing um with the index that we created um and Ashwin scored pretty highly by the way um it's because of the number of wickets per test match, and um, they're pretty useful batsmen as well. So, uh, just wanted to mention that they are just above ten in our index, so that places them in um, as far as the overall stats are concerned among elite all-rounders um, ever to play the game. But um, anyway, I'll let Arch talk about um, Hardik Pandya and stuff. So, I think uh,
2: yeah, very interesting points, Maish. Um, and uh, but what I would say is. Certainly, in Indian conditions, playing Jared and Ashwin together is very, very valuable because you can play a five-man attack because both of them are, both of them are, are capable That's The problem is when you go away from home, you'd, in English conditions, you'd rather play, if you have a five-man attack, you will rather have uh, four seamers usually. I mean, I'm, today, I mean, in this match against England, Pakistan have picked, uh, obviously, two spinners. But generally, um, you could see why India wanted to play Hardik Pandya. And actually, Hardik Pandya, when he played, wasn't completely out of his depth. I mean, he got five wickets at Trent Bridge, if I remember rightly. And he got yeah. some useful, he played some useful innings as well. But I agree with you, Maj. I think the, the problem with Hardik Pandya is even though on paper his stats were okay, you know, 30 kind of average with the bat, 30 with the ball, you know, you could, as an overall player, he probably can make the side. But he just, didn't, he just didn't quite fit into the balance because he's not quite good enough to bat top six, and he's not quite good enough to be your, in your main three seamers. So he kind of threw the balance off the side.
1: Yeah, so that's, that's a larger point I was making, that if you're not in that elite sort of level, a bowling all-rounder lends himself naturally to the team balance versus uh, batting all-rounder. That's, that's just a minor point that I was making because uh, I am a bowling all-rounder, so I'm just batting off <laughs> price. Uh, Sort of a logical excuse Sorry, go ahead,
2: Arjun. I would agree with you, um, but I think it also, the problem for in, with Indian cricketing specifically, e- even if Hardik Pandya was a better bowler than he is, he still wouldn't be as good as uh, Jasper Brumra, Mohammed Shami or Ishan Sharma in, in current form. So he's never really going to get into that side as a bowler. Um, and if you want the spinner, he's, so he's not going to be part of the four-man attack. So for him to get into the side, he really needs to be a top six batsman. So I, I guess maybe we're kind of agreeing with each other. Um, in a roundabout but at week. the same
0: time, you you have a lot of quality, you know, batsmen in the wings for India as well. So that might be yeah. difficult to.
2: He won't. <laughs> no, no, him he himself. won't make it because because someone like Hanuman Hanuma um, you know, first class record, you know, and even what he's done so far, in his test match career has been
0: reasonable. Yeah, it's a bit like all the you know, batsmen Australia had and all the fast West Indies had. He just. Uh, Sometimes a team having too big a squad, very you know, good bench strength could uh, impact people like Harding Pandya. A,
2: an interesting point, Mahesh, I wanted to make um, was that I would, this may be stretching it, but an equivalent type of player to Hardik Pandya, although he's slightly different, would be someone like Amoyen Ali. Amoyen Ali actually, you know, if you look at his raw numbers, they aren't particularly impressive. You know, you've got a, something like a 28 batting average, um, 36 bowling average. Um, but the key point was that he was a spinner and after Graham Swan retired, England didn't really have any good quality spinners and even now the jury's still out. So, uh, even though Moin Ali, his individual disciplines probably wasn't quite there because the, the ban- he added something to the balance of the side, he could get in. But someone like Harik Pandya didn't really, as, as we discussed, didn't really uh, sort of imbalance the side. Okay, so
1: moving on, uh, in terms of in terms of all-rounders, I know you, you guys have talked about your index as well, and I'm sure it, uh, this problem comes through in your index as well. On how do you how do you uh, distinguish between or or let me put it this way: is there a very clear demarcation point between uh, calling someone a greater cricketer but a lesser all-rounder? Let's say, for instance, someone like Ashwin averages more than five wickets a match. Richard Hadley averages five wickets a match. Now you could have another all-rounder with better secondary skill than Hadley. But overall, uh, there are clearly pockets where, uh, where someone can be a much greater cricketer, although he's a lesser all-rounder. Did that come through in your, in your uh, indices as well?
0: Um, we did a um, scaling so that both the batting and bowling were equally um, weighed in. Um, because we had a um, lot of moderation, Two things. Um, it didn't really favor one or the other. It, it's quite balanced. Without um, sounding big headed, I think that's, uh, it's, we've added a lot of moderation to make sure that um, at least extreme number of wickets per test or Osorbis's extreme number of runs per test. Uh, that's why betting in number six, he scored more runs than Callis per test. Um, so we moderated it. So it didn't really pick up on that. And we wanted to make sure that the index is about all rounders, and like Arj said, you know the secondary skill has to be a higher threshold than you know some people are useful at something um so for instance, if we use the same index for some of the batsmen and bowlers um it wouldn't quite work well because they don't meet the minimum threshold, like for instance, if I use um Tendulka as um numbers on this index, it will be. Significantly lower than capital dev because of the wickets per test and all those um, contribution from both part. Um, but moving f- away from the index, um, uh, do you want to add something, Arj?
2: Um No, I think it's a very interesting question, which one that I've thought about for, for a lot. Um, Uh, Usually, a lot of the the top all-rounders, like we mentioned, the Sobers, uh, the Imran, even a a Jacques Callis, um, or a Hadley, someone like that, their primary skill is of an all-time great level. So, it's quite easy to compare them because you think, for example, with with the Sobers, his batting alone is already, in my opinion, I agree with Ravi, I think he's probably the second best ever, so it's quite, quite easy to rate him above other batsmen or, or even without considering the bowling. And, and someone like an Imran Khan, you know, if you were to compare, or even a Richard Hadley, you take a Richard Hadley, say, and one of the great fast bowlers, a Dennis Lilley. Um To me, it's pretty obvious that uh, on bowling, it's close. I'd probably favour Hadley slightly, but overall with Hadley's batting, he's clearly better. Where it becomes more interesting as a player, as an overall player, where it becomes more interesting is how do you compare... A player who wasn't an all-time great in either of his disciplines, he was very good in them, very good in one and useful in the other, versus an all-time great in one discipline. Then it becomes tricky. So, for example, Majid, I'll throw the question to you: In India, who 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 would you say is rated as a better, more valuable Test player? Um, Sunil Gavaska or Kapil Dev?
1: More valuable Test player, I would think most people will will side with Sunny. Um, but of course, if you extend it to other formats and overall. Uh, couple kind of, uh, you know, comes over. And the reason being that uh, couples record as a, as a bowler, while great by Indian standards, uh, uh, phenomenal in fact, by Indian standards, this is, is uh, perhaps a little less so compared to other great bowlers around the world for good reason as well, because he bowled in conditions which are harder and stuff like that. But even when he bowled in conditions, which are more favorable. Uh, it's probably not in, in the elite, so to say, not in, in the cream of cream. But as Sunny makes it yeah. the cream of cream on all parameters as a batsman. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, currently, Kapil did
2: that well in England with the ball. But as I, so I agree with you, but I think still, still, if you think about it, you've got an all time great batsman in Gavaska, you've got a very fine bowler in Kapil Dev. So, on, if you just compare those two, of course, Gavaska wins. But if you then add Kapil Dev's batting into that, can he not catch up? I mean, that's why it's a tricky question, which I don't have the answer to.
1: No, which is precisely the reason why I threw the question to you guys. I find it extremely <laughs> problematic. Uh, but I also I'm fairly comfortable in picking Sunny overall because uh, uh, the, the the problem with all arounders is that the padding of stats. You you add up two things like like the one that I mentioned earlier about Callis being equated to Sachin plus Zaheer. Uh That that applies pretty much throughout. Like you take someone like Stokes, right? You add a 43 batting average to a sub. I don't know. I don't know what is his overall average. Let's say sub 30 bowling average. It feels like you've got like more than one and a half cricketers. But uh, at the end of the day, Malcolm Marshall is, is certainly superior. That's, there's no doubt about it. But if you go down to someone lesser than Malcolm Marshall, even let's say uh, Jimmy Anderson or Stuart Broad, then it gets very tricky, right? Uh, how do you assess the value of to, two very different cricketers?
2: very very difficult question and again will depend on the balance of the side and various other factors
0: yeah just to um, i know you you said you would um, comfortably pick um, sunil Gavaskar. but would you do the same um, if you're doing that say you know in the um, late 1970s early 1980s um, throughout the 80s for capital would you do the same given what india had a much stronger batting lineup and bowling lineup would you still pick sunil Gavaskar as a more useful um, cricketer for the team than Kapil did for that Indian team. Just, I'm, I'm just curious, you know.
1: I mean, we could probably zero in on phases where where Kapil was suddenly more valuable to the team, and and it also didn't help that uh, the Sunny's uh, second half of his career was not as prolific as the first half at large. You know, plus there are patches where uh, where he had a fairly lean run. Even his record against West Indies, which, uh, which gets talked about quite a lot for both good and bad, uh, has its own you know, conditions apply uh, asterisks attached to it because his performance against uh, the pace battery is not as good as uh, it is against the overall West Indies since he started. Uh, right. Yeah, th- certainly that's a very valid point. That uh, certainly, if you took, look at just the 80s where uh, you have couple speak and a little bit of a relative lean for Sunny, plus a stronger batting lineup, couple is probably more valuable.
0: Okay, yeah, like uh, I, yeah, I think it just comes down to team balance in most cases uh, when it's not as clear cut.
1: Yeah, so, so in fact, there was a segue for us to actually talk about the more meaty subject of of uh, the pitfalls of talking about all around us, of talking about the differences, of talking about the near parity of skills. Uh, it's as if uh, Chris Keynes, somehow because of his near parity of skills, becomes a superior you know, cricketer to, to Sean Pollock or something like that. You know, I know that's an absurd example, but a lot of the current obsession with all-rounder discussion seems to go along these lines. In fact, yesterday I read an article in Cricket Info which puts so much focus on, one, the difference in averages, which is kind of ridiculous because if Bradman had to bowl and he averaged 70 his uh, with the ball, his uh, difference would still be superior to Sobers in, in, in Callis or whatever.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and that's why I say it's too biased towards batting all-rounders. One minus the other.
1: Yeah, just one alternative thought can just can, can break open the fallacy in that number. That's one thing, and there are other parameters like you know, like the making things happen thing, where uh, they had a, a stat on uh, the percentage of partnerships broken by a uh, bowler when the partnership is across fifty. And very naturally, it's going to favour someone like Stokes because he's a broader and Anderson is going to dismiss batsman even before a partnership has reached 50. Stokes is only going to come in when when partnerships have flourished and and they need to give rest to the mainstream bowlers or they need to try something new. And Stokes typically being a fifth or a sixth bowler and occasionally fourth bowler as well, has a greater probability of making things happen. But that is just by the design of the game. It's got nothing to do with Stokes' extraordinary ability to make things happen. So uh, the larger point that I want to kind of uh, discuss about is uh, with this whole all-rounder obsession by kind of uh, adding up two fairly unrelated numbers to make a greater whole, uh, is that good for cricket? And and that is from a theoretical academic discussion like you and I are having, uh, but even otherwise uh, within a team setup, like you take example, take uh, England uh, rightly, uh, right now, for example, you have Stokes, you have Sam Curran, you have Wolves. Now, you could play all three right sam, uh, sam could play a hundred tests average 30 35 with the bat and possibly 30 with the ball and that's going to be a phenomenal stat but that's not ideally good for the team so is this all-rounder opposition, uh, can, can it go to fairly unhealthy
2: boundaries um i mean it can if you if you if you sacrifice the balance of the team to fit in the best players on paper um, and it's a problem that England have been having recently. As you said, too many good... They already have Broad and Anderson as um, proven performers in test cricket with the ball over a number of years. Um, Chris Works is excellent in English conditions. Um, Sam Curran, again, should, you know, could, easily, could easily play in, in home conditions as well. And then you've got people like... Uh, Wood hasn't done so well at home. And Archer's obviously got the talent. You can't fit them all into the side, even though on paper, someone like a Chris Wokes or someone like a Sam Curran is more valuable than someone like a Zach Crawley, who's a frontline batsman. So it's a kind of a problem that England have been facing. They don't have that many good batsmen, but they have so many good bowlers. And, those, and a lot of the good bowlers that they have can also bat. So you, I would argue you're, you're correct, because, for example, in this test match that we see, England versus Pakistan, uh, you've got this ridiculous situation of, uh, you say ridiculous, but Chris Wokes is batting at number seven. I mean, you're playing a batsman short, you've got Jos Butler, who hasn't been scoring that many runs, batting at number six. So this is a prime example of your, your point, Mahesh, about the, the unhealthy obsession of, of picking people who, who, who can do both. Um, at the same time, in looking at this specific test match, there's a general principle, but looking at this specific test match, I guess England felt that you can't leave Broad and Anderson out, they need Archer for the extra pace, Wokes in home conditions is too good, and they've got to need the spinner. But ultimately, I think you've got to pick your best four bowlers um, and, and deal with it and then, and then and play six batsmen and have the keeper at seven. Uh, just because uh, you're adding the value of, two play, of a player up and they come to more than another player, they don't fit the balance of the side. Uh, there's no need for them. And as you said, you've even got Ben, ben Stokes' fitness as a cl- bit of a cloud, but you've got Ben Stokes there. What's the point of having him as a sixth bowler? If he's an all-rounder, you may as well have him as a... Um, assuming he's fit, you should have him as a, as a fifth bowler
1: So what are the other narrative fallacies around all-rounders that, that kind of annoy you that kind of irritate you or that, that deserves more nuance is there something that you have uh, uh, which are favourites
2: For me <laughs> I guess it's kind of people do this thing where they mix formats up so you can get people who are certainly good one-day all-rounders um, but when it comes to test matches they're not all-rounders but people sometimes think they are Um, that's a slight annoyance for me sometimes because it takes a very different thing to be a test all-rounder compared to a one-day all-rounder.
0: For me, it's about um, looking at the overall career stats. Um, It's because the thing about all-rounders is that most of them started very young. If you look at all the 10 names we picked, eight of them started as teenagers or maybe 20, 21. And the only two who didn't start were for non-cricketing reasons. Um, Tony Gregg had to wait the residency period in England, and uh, Keith Miller um, had to wait because of the Second World War, although he uh, made his debut as a specialist batsman in first-class cricket and made 180, 81 at the um, age of 18. So, you know, these guys are phenomenally talented cricketers. So they're going to develop their secondary skill with time. So when you look at their overall stats... Not all of them are going to, you know, stand out, and so that's my thing. Like, uh, for instance, if you look at Richie Benno, his um, batting average is uh, lower than his bowling average. So you automatically go, "Ah, oh, was he really an all-rounder?" But then you look at the faces, and we'll talk about it a bit more later on um, when the right opportunity comes up. You would say, "Okay, he was a very good all-rounder." So for me, that looking at someone's entire career because these are talented bunch. They take time to develop. So they're going to be strong at something. In some cases, they start as the strongest in something and they end up being the opposite. McKeith Miller, Aubrey Faulkner, they just, you know, they reverse their roles. So um, for me, the only annoying thing about people comparing all-rounders is looking at the entire career stats. And um, this applies to not just all-rounders, but for specialist batsmen and bowlers as well. People compare, especially across eras, they look at the number of test matches. For me, you don't look at the number of chestnuts, you look at the number of years. Like, um, for instance, um, I, I'm using service as an example all the time, mainly because I remember his numbers off the top of my head more than anyone else. And also they are the most extreme, phenomenal numbers, so it's easy to put it in context. Like, he had an eight-year peak as an all-rounder um, from early 1960s to 1968 when he had the floating bone in his left shoulder, he couldn't ball spin in that eight, eight and a half or nine year period, his batting average was in the mid sixties and his bowling average was 27, 28. And that is phenomenal. Imagine batting average of mid sixties and bowling average 27, 28 for eight years. But sadly he only played 33 test matches in in those eight years. I don't have the number off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure someone like Alistair Cook would have played 100-plus test matches in eight years. So uh, the other second thing that annoys me, not just for all-rounders but for anyone, comparing number of test matches. You've got to look at number of years and make adjustments for it uh, so that um, you know, um, there is an e- equality in scale. It also applies even modern-day cricketers. Um, we posted a um, few um, match-frequency tables. I don't know whether you saw them for like people like Chandulkar in the 90s, how he didn't play enough test matches and um, early 90s. And Eunice Khan, Andy Flower, we put, put up some tables on a quick investigate. Um, and how they were in their prime and didn't play enough matches. And you, and, but whereas someone from England or Australia would be playing so many test matches, so they maximised their peak. So that reflects in the overall career stats. So, yeah, for me, it's, you have to look at long, substantial segments, not just in you know, one year or two years, but eight, nine years, and um, look with some sort of context.
1: It's a terrific point, Rav. In fact, uh, the reply, like you said, that applies to more than just all around us. And the Sachin uh, number is something that, uh, that has haunted me for a long time, because personally, I like the Sachin between 94 and 99, and that's his absolute peak as a batsman. And and if you look at the average number of tests he played during that era, is, is, is a joke because India was obsessed with uh, with one days at that time, and we played about 35 to 40 one days every year, every year. That really really sold him short as a test batsman. Extending on that point, even when it comes to all-rounders, there are two things, right? One, uh, these players start young, and the secondary skills take time to develop. But even in the case of let's say someone like Daniel Vettori or Heath Streak, who started out as bowlers but subsequently kind of improved their batting so much that during a fairly substantial phase, they were genuine all-rounders. If you look at the overall numbers, that, that's not going to appear so, particularly for someone like Heath Street, or uh, or someone like Ashwin, for instance, who had a terrific period as an all-rounder for a fairly long time, but his batting kind of tapered off after that. Uh, so if you look at his overall record, obviously, especially if he continues in the, in the current sort of form in batting for another five years, he may not even be considered an all-rounder after a while. But fact is, for about five years, he was a general grounder, rounder So, yeah, it's a very, very uh, valid point. Uh, sort of taking off from there, and given um, uh, Rav set it up pretty well that most of these players start very young, and uh, and one, the secondary skills take time to develop, and more importantly, even their body, right? To uh, how the body copes up with the workload over time. Uh, in 20, 21, 22, uh, your body could take a lot, but over time, uh, is going to be much harder. And, and that we've seen with Caglias, with Sobos themselves that where, where they went through phases where the secondary skill could not be as uh, as robust as, as it used to be. Uh, so given given how difficult it is to first of all, uh, find an all-rounder with that level of skills and two, to have the body and the fitness to cope up with it pretty much throughout, is it realistically possible for a cricketing ecosystem to even nurture an all-rounder? Is it like, for instance, you know, India was obsessed with creating fast bowlers, and at that time, you ask anybody, you ask Lee, you ask any of the great fast bowlers, what should India do to create fast bowlers? There was a very clear prescriptive message that they can give. You know, do these things, and you might you're very likely to produce fast bowlers. But is it even possible to give such a prescriptive uh, thing to to nurturing an all rounder?
2: I mean, I don't think there is. Um, I can't see. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do because, as Rav correctly said. Uh, you look at the age that these guys started. I think they're often freaks of nature. You can't plan it. I mean, England spent a long time after Ian Botham retired, trying to find the next Botham, trying to shoehorn people into that role. But no one even came, came close to him until Andrew Flintoff came, came in, who probably wasn't as good, but still was a very fine all-rounder. And so I think it's very difficult. Look at Gary Sobers, the greatest. I mean, he influenced so many West Indians. But since he played, they haven't had another one. Um, even, you know, you look at the South Africans, uh, South Africans are incredible. They produced, um, in the 70s, they produced, you know, five all rounders, four five all rounders. In the late 90s, they produced four or five all rounders. Um, Dr. Ali Baca, who's who captained the side in the 70s that beat Australia, you know, the side that uh, beat the touring Australians 4 0. And also, he was in administration and knew the late 90s players very well. He wrote a book called uh, Jacques Callison 12. Other all-rounders, where he looks into the South African all-rounders. But he himself can't actually come up with a reason as to why South Africa produced the all-rounders and what the secret was. It's kind of the only thing you can think of in their case is a, is a sporting culture. Uh, but there's no clear reason uh, and way I can see of just producing these all-rounders. Otherwise, people would have been doing it. Um, they just seem to just pop up.
1: Yeah, they, they, so Rao, would you agree that they're just freaks of nature that we should just be fortunate to get once in a while?
0: Oh yeah, 100%. Like, I mean, I, yeah, I've, I've covered all the points pretty much. I can't think of it like why West Indies uh, haven't produced one since Gary saw this. And um, um, it's like, yeah, England was, England, they were chasing, pretty much they were trying to make all-rounders out of so many people and then it didn't happen. And you, you can you know bet your bottom dollar that England would have had the system in place to uh, try and create the next both of them. It just didn't happen. And same goes for Australia. Like since Keith Miller, we didn't really have a test quality all rounder. I mean Shane Watson was a fantastic one day all rounder. Oh please, do not get me started on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, yeah, but I mean, Shane Watson was decent. He's like an, you know some but inferior version of callous in both sense, but um, it was a fantastic audio run. Like Australia haven't produced one, so I'm pretty sure Australia had a, have a pretty good system in developing cricketers, but they're just freaks of nature. um, Yeah, like we said earlier, they all started very young. I think, yeah.
1: So talking I mean, now that we all agree that they're freaks of nature and it's an absolute accident that we get all around us, I'm a little, uh, and, and Arj already covered it to some extent, where even Adi Bakar says we don't know why we produce so many all-rounders. And uh, and talking of England, even though both them phenomenon didn't kind of lead on to a system, it, but England did produce three iconic all-rounders. When I say iconic, I mean including Flintoff, because for a brief period he was uh, pretty much in the last fifty years. Right, you had both of them, and then you had. They were talking about next Botham, next Botham, there was all kinds of people, Alex Tudor, Ronnie, Ronnie, they included everybody, but eventually they found Flintoff. And pretty soon after they found Stokes, is there something, I mean, of course, there is no meritorious uh, cricketing system-driven logic here. Perhaps it's, it's the obsession of the society or whatever. Is there something that explains this uh, This three iconic all-rounders plus a flurry of all-rounders in, in South Africa? Is, does that explain something about the society or the ecosystem that they operate in?
2: Very tough question, Mahesh, um, but I'll try and answer it. As, as far as I'm concerned, um, England in the last 50 years, you wouldn't say they had a, a particular bowler or a batsman who you'd classify as you know absolutely all-time great. But Ian Botham was an all-time great player, and, and he was like a, a massive hero in England. I mean, he was every, every child's hero. So that must have led to many people uh, desiring and wanting to become all-rounders. Um, but it still took a while for, after he retired for someone to filter through. And the same with Flintoff. Flintoff captured the imagination in, that, in that of course, that famous 2005 Ashes series. Um, and for three years between 2003 and 2005, those three years, he was phenomenal. And he and was box office stuff. People wanted to watch cricket because of him. And kids, would have, kids who were following cricket at that stage, because it was still on the uh, national TV, they would have actually, uh, Flintoff would have definitely been the hero. So that's the only kind of angle I can sort of get on it, where that people who were watching cricket would have watched it for those players at that time. The casual fans would have watched it for those players, and it may have inspired people to try and become all-rounders. But it's very, very difficult to pin a reason as to why it happened um, for, for stuff that we've mentioned. Um, the South Africans I've always just been been amazed by. Uh, I just I just can't explain it. It's it's really it's amazing, um, you know. And, and what even more amazing in that nineteen late nineties side for a brief time when they had. Um, Callis, Pollock, uh, Brian McMillan and Klusner um, on top of that you also had people who didn't quite make the all-rounder category like Pat Simcox who, who, who averaged 28 with the bat <laughs> down the order uh, he's actually won some test matches with his batting and then you've got someone and like was, Hansi and Kron- was dropped immediately after scoring 100 <laughs> exactly exactly. and, um, and, and he, he, even um, the likes of Hansi Kronje, Uh you, you remember Tendulkar said his, the hardest bowler, South African bowler to face was Cronje. Uh, so and he, so th- their side was really a multi-talented side. Um, the, the 1970s side was was phenomenal. I mean, you had, uh, you know, Mike Proctor was a serious player. Um, he didn't get to play, obviously, more than seven tests. And then you had uh, Trevor Goddard, who was coming to the end by that point. It was fantastic. And then Eddie Barlow um, uh, and then uh, Tiger Lance. And um, Clyde Rice didn't get to play any tests, but he, he made his first-class debut the previous year. It's all phenomenal stuff, and people have looked into it. I mean, South Africa right now would, would die for having some of these all-rounders, but they just can't seem to produce it. So I'm kind of repeating myself and, and not really answering your question, but I think that's because I don't think there is a clear answer. Um, unless Rav has something to, to pull out.
0: Uh, no, this is, uh, no. It's, it would just purely be speculative, you know, how I like to stick to my empiricals. Um Now, the only thing I can think of is, like you mentioned um, there's this you know massive sporting culture in South Africa that they play in different sports. And um, it's the same in Australia. So Australia haven't produced anything. I mean, when I was in high school, I had to play four different sports for four different seasons. And I was like, I wish there was indoor cricket and stuff. No, <laughs> because, you know, I would have loved to play four different seasons of cricket. So I had to find three other sports to cricket to play here. So, you know, we do have a sporting culture here as well. And uh, I, I played chess for one season. Don't ask me why it was considered sport for some reason um, so but Australia haven't produced as many as South Africa so um, I, you know I can't really answer that uh, and it's a pretty high, you know, big sporting culture in Australia as well especially in Victoria but um, yeah I, I don't know I can only speculate even speculation I don't know where to start It's so uh, I would just say it's I would probably you know um, say they're just freaks of nature I can't really see how one country could produce more than the other or what sort of system. Uh, I mean, Mayesh, to throw the question (laughs) back to you, although that's (laughs) that's the wrong way around. Um, uh,
2: You know, someone like Kapil Dev, I mean, such a phenomenal player and such an influence on Indian cricket. I mean, why do you think that there hasn't been more... uh, I mean, you had, obviously, you had Manoj Prabhakar as well, but why do you think there hasn't been more kind of fast bowling all-rounders in India,
1: just because of the uh, condition? The reason I ask you this question is, is because I mean, it's a very heavy, heavy question that no, obviously, even if you do a PhD on this topic, you're not gonna get a definitive answer. It is just to get a sense of uh, a very you know pet theory that you have, you know, just a random theory that all of us have to explain the world. And the, and the reason why I asked you is because I found uh, this sort of personal theory, which has absolutely no grounding on any empirical evidence or whatever, uh, it's purely my subjective opinion, is the fact that once I heard uh, Osman talk about why Pakistan was able to produce fast bowlers uh, pretty much like in an assembly line once uh, Imran came through, and why other countries, particularly India, which has a border, which has in some ways similar culture, people have given all kinds of rubbish theories about, uh, about Pakistan is eating beef because there are also a lot of Indians eating beef, and, and that doesn't really explain it. And and Osman made this point, which at that time, which is actually a point that you also made now, is the fact that Imran was such a hero, such a massive hero for, for the population of Pakistan, that it, he just created a, a much wider base of cricketers trying to be fast bowlers. And naturally when the base widens, you're going to end up with, with, with a much better shortlist eventually filtering through, uh, and that automatically produces uh, hopefully better bowlers. This, I found that a very convincing explanation, the power of hero. And uh, and to answer your question on Kapil, it's actually true that Kapil did inspire a generation of people to, to kind of mimic him, to follow him. You had Chetan Sharma, you had Man- Manoj Prabhakar, that's of course at the international level, but you look a little lower, like someone like Ritinder Singh Sodhi, for instance, who won the under 15 World Cup for India, was part of the under 19 World Cup winning team, which uh, Kaif captained uh, in Sri Lanka in, uh, in the late 90s. Uh, he grew up, like he was a topic of Indian cricket for many years. Uh, and he modeled himself on Kapil. He said, if I could be 20% of Kapil, I'll be very happy. Uh, you had Lakshmi Ratan Shukla from Bengal who who was talked of as the next Kapil. Uh, it's a very similar to Botham phenomenon in, in England, for instance. When Alex Tudor came up, they said he's the next Botham. Uh, so many all-rounders. Anybody who could bat and bowl a bit, essentially it widens the base. And, and in a country like Pakistan, especially at that time, when cricket pretty much took over the mainstream consciousness, the base really widened. Unfortunately in India, perhaps the cricket infrastructure was not good enough or or maybe just the quality was not enough, but but the base was certainly widening after couple. It was just not coming through to the top player, possibly because it's easier to produce fast bowlers through a system plus through through this hero inspiration, but it's much more difficult to produce an all-rounder like we discussed earlier. But that's probably the only convincing personal explanation that I have to make sense of this phenomenon.
2: Actually, my, I think that's a very uh, good explanation. and it, it actually makes sense to me because I think it, it then circles back to our point that heroes can inspire you to become a batsman or a bowler, but all-rounders are just kind of freaks of nature. So when people wanted to copy Imran Khan, they copied his stronger suit, which was his bowling. They worked hard on that, but it's very difficult for them to also do the batting at the same time. thats I mean, that's the only thing I can... Your explanation to me makes some kind of sense.
0: But if I may add something to that, even Imran Khan himself became a, you know, very decent batsman towards the end. So if it took a man of that talent to develop into a decent batsman that many years, you can't really expect, you know, um, people half as talented as him to be good all-rounders because it took Imran that long to be a very decent batsman. So...
1: Yeah, so I think with with that, all speculation part of the uh, the episode is done with. Uh, but but it's kind of interesting to pick up on on what are your personal theories uh, behind things that you can't really explain, right? Uh, okay, moving on. Uh, the other aspect of all rounders that I want to touch upon is the fact that uh, I mean, uh, Firdos wrote about wrote this about Callis, for instance, calling him in the ultimate luxury, which is uh, for a team like South Africa, which is what it was, right? Callus bowling was an absolute luxury. He could have been a third or a fourth bowler in any other team. But given the riches of fast bowling reserves that they had, he was ultimate luxury. It, does that in fact oversell uh, the value of an all rounder? The fact that uh, it is essentially a luxury for the team, but because we as fans are obsessed about the additivity of the numbers. Uh, to give you another example, uh, you take, I mean, this is a wicket keeping all rounder, Andy Flower. Zimbabwe could so easily have found another specialist wicket keeper who was as good as another batsman in the team who is not Andy Flower and could have relieved him of his duties to keep as well. So in a way, it was an extra luxury, which was not really adding to the team in some sense. Uh, I mean, which is not to criticize Andy Flower. I'm just saying, just because someone is multifaceted doesn't mean it's going to add to the value to the team. Is that that a fair uh, point to make?
2: Um, It depends on the specific circumstance. It varies from player to player. So if we look at Andy Flower, as you mentioned, um, it's hard to say, because actually, if you look at his stats, his, his, his averages, when he wasn't keeping, w- was actually a lot worse, his batting averages. But I think he only played something like eight tests, uh, not as a keeper. So it's kind of hard to read too much into it. But I never got the impression that Flowers, it must have bothered, actually, the keeping must have tied him because he was batting in the top order. But it's hard to say how many more runs he would make if he, did, if he wasn't the keeper. And it's also hard to say how much worse a batsman the... Alternative keeper would have been then their specialist batsman they would have picked because Flower was keeping. So with Flower, I don't think it's a clear answer. Um, well, let me, give you, Candace, another example. Let me
1: give you another on. example. Let's say taking off on Flower. Uh, Sangakara for instance, went on to become yeah. a much better batsman once he gave up the flowers. And they found Prasanna Jayavadhani, who replaced another batsman, very loud, very yeah. clear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Sri Lanka did not suffer, not just because Sangakara became a much better batsman, but even otherwise Prasanna Jayavadhani was an adequate batsman uh, when he replays the batsman, right?
2: Right, that, that's a very good point, Maish. Um, Sri Lanka, on the whole, benefited from Sangakara giving up the gloves. Um, but there's a, there's a couple of factors here. Um, at the time when Sangakara re, uh, started off uh, as a wicketkeeper, keeper, Sri Lanka actually had uh, a lot of good batsmen. They, had, they could have played uh, seven proper batsmen, including Sangakara as keeper. In their side, they had the names. They had, you know, Jayasuriya, Atapattu, and Sanghakara, Jayawodhana, um, Samurabhira, Tilakarana was around then. Um, so they, they could, uh, um, Dilshan, they could have fitted them all in. So there was a relu- relu- that's why there was a reluctance to, to give the gloves to someone else. Uh, but then when um, Sanghakara gave up the gloves, uh, as you said, his batting output went from an average of 40 to 66 because he was batting in the top three, it made such a big difference. Um, also, another factor which should be slightly brought in is the fact that his batting peak, when he changed his start, tinkering with his technique, also coincided with him giving up the gloves as well. So, not all of that, a lot of that game was because he gave up the gloves, but not all of that game w- w- was, was due to that. Um, and the other point to make was that, so, so I think... Prasanna Jayawardena's batting was decent. It wasn't as good as if as a as the, uh, if they had played a specialist batsman, but the increase in runs from Sangakara made up for that. And also, Prasanna Jayawardena was a better wicketkeeper um, against spin than Sangakara. So the overall benefit to the side was clearly there. So I'd agree with you. Sangakara as a pure batsman, was more valuable to the side than as an all-round as a as a wicketkeeper batsman.
0: I can't let this opportunity pass without bringing in Service again. I'll be quick. Um, when Sobers first made his um, 100, his maiden 100 was, you know, the 365. From that point onwards um, till towards the end of 1960 when they went to Australia, his batting average in that three-year period, he made over 2,000 runs at an average of 98.4. And he largely batted in the top three, um, top four. I think his average at, in um, three and four were well over 100 for 15, 16 hundred runs. And... Um, but then when he became the all-rounder um, around the time of that Tide Test series, um, he developed his bowling a lot while he was playing for the Sheffield Shield for those three years. His numbers were phenomenal. like He was making 100 runs per test and taking six, almost six wickets per test, uh, which you would have heard Ian Chappell mentioned on several interviews. Um, but when he went down the order after he started bowling a lot, Um, I would just get rid of all the filters and then just go the entire career of service. His batting average at number three was 72. He made over 1,000 runs. And his batting average at number four made over 1,500 runs, was 64. His batting average at number five was almost 60. Um, But his most common batting position over over his entire career was number six, which was um, wherein he averaged a moderate by his standards, 53. So you can see how the bowling responsibility made him slide down from number three averaging 72 to, you know, averaging 53 at number six. So in his case, it definitely affected his batting. But West Indies weren't the strongest side by any stretch of the imagination, especially in terms of bowling. Because Service was one of the leading wicket-takers for West Indies in that time. And uh, so his bowling was a lot more useful to the side, although, you know, you could argue it was only half as good as his batting. So...
1: So, but Sobers being uh, uh, an all-rounder certainly helped the team. The, the, I mean, he could have been a, a batsman averaging seventy-five, or he could have been a batsman averaging nearly sixty, but a bowler averaging thirties, and, and exactly. that suited West Indies cricket much better.
0: Yes, his bowling suited West Indies cricket much better, and then him batting at number five, six, and to control the game from there. Whenever West Indies was in trouble, he would make a hundred. When West Indies were, you know, I don't know, four for three hundred or four hundred, you wouldn't see many service hundreds or fifties from that batting position. He just didn't have to score, which enabled him to take the new ball and um, take in a couple of wickets, especially if it's a boycott or Barrington. So, um, yeah, like you said, exactly. Him being a all-rounder with very, very you know, good bowling made a huge difference to West Indies than him averaging that extra 10, 15 months in the bat.
1: Okay, so let's move on to the other tricky aspect of uh, all-rounders, and it's, it's always been a fairly dicey definition or that of wicket-keeping all-rounders. Uh, I have two questions on this. One, uh, would you consider a wicket-keeping batsmen uh, as all-rounders? Um, actually, I have three questions. Two is, do you really find uh, the fact that teams choose better batsmen essentially by by sort of uh, settling for a lesser keeper, if that had to happen. And the third question is, how how important was the Gilchrist phenomenon? And the reason why I'm asking is that pretty much the entire cricketing universe talks about uh, the role of cricket keepers having changed post-Gilchrist, which is actually not, if you go factually, it may not be true because we had Andy Flower before that, we had Alex Stewart before that. Uh, if you go further back in history, I don't know how to pronounce this name, but let's say these Ames, miss is there? Is there a first name or Ames? Les Ames, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there is enough sample, and uh, even Alan Not was a was a very handy batsman for his time.
0: Uh, how how do you assess the Gilchrist phenomenon? Okay, um, so uh, like you said, those names, you know, Les Ames, and Alan Not, and all those guys. Um, they were sort of, you know once-in-a-blue-moon sort of cricketers. Like, they there weren't too many of them. Because i got some numbers for you. Um, let's not go too far, because, you know, 19th century could affect the numbers so badly. So if I take the, 40, the last 40 years of the 20th century, the top seven batsmen um, averaged almost 37. This is non-wicket keepers, right? And in the last 20 years, the so 21st century, the top seven batsmen averaged 38, just over. So the difference is one to one and a half runs. So there was no change in normal batsmen. So you can say things have been even. Uh, But when you look at the wicket-keeping batsmen in the last 40 years of um, 20th century, their batting average was just over 25. Whereas if you look at the last 20 years, their batting average is 32 and a half. That's a massive seven-run increase. And most people actually have this um, theory that Everyone's expected to bat these days, It might be true. It is an expectation, but it's not the reality. So what I did is I looked up the numbers for batsmen, um, not batsmen, tailenders, who are not wicket keepers, from number 8, 9, 10, 11. The last 40 years of 20th century, their batting average is 14.4, whereas the last 20 years, so the 21st century, is 15.07. So there's an increase of 0.61s per wicket. And if you tell that to anyone, they're like, nah, that can't be right. But that is raw data. And um, so although there's an expectation that the tail enders are expected to bat, it just hasn't happened. And top seven batsmen, they haven't improved much. It's the same, 37 and 38. But wicket Keepers went from 21.6 to 32.5, which meant the Gilchrist phenomenon actually is true. It, out of the three aspects of the game, Top order batsmen, tail enders, and wicket keepers. The only thing that improved significantly over the last 60 years, if you separate it by 40 and 20 years, because Gilchrist started playing in 99, um, wicket keeping was the only thing that on raw data has improved significantly. So I would say that his um, legacy has been quite strong and immediate. Sometimes, you know, the legacy takes a while to happen because 10, 11-year-olds looking at them, you know, it takes them 10, 15 years to become those inspired by them. But, um, yeah, so I do think that it has improved their batting in wicketkeeping keeping more than um, the other two. Um, do, you want to, uh, do you have anything about the balance here? I remember you mentioned a very good point, Arch, about Gilchrist.
2: Um, yeah, no, I mean, obviously, you know, no one would disagree. He's uh, one of the greatest of all time as a, as a keeper batsman. He's a phenomenal player. But actually, uh, he didn't affect the... I, I'm one of the category. I don't classify keepers as all-rounders. And he didn't actually affect the balance of the of the Australian side because they still played the six batsmen, Gilchrist, and the four bowlers. Because they had um, a very, very fine spinner in Shane Warne, one of the greatest. They could afford to have a four-man attack they didn't need to play a fifth bowler. Now, had they needed to play a fifth bowler, they could have maybe possibly picked, dropped one of the specialist batsmen and picked a, a, an all-rounder, but, uh, and Gilchrist's batting would have allowed them to do that. But they didn't need to do that. So Gilchrist actually didn't even, didn't affect the balance of the Australian side in any way. Uh, before Gilchrist, you had Ian Healy. Um, he batted at seven, nowhere near as good a batsman as Gilchrist. Um, so Gilchrist was just a phenomenon in that he just brought more runs to the role um, in crucial situations. And uh, based on you know based on the stats that Rav just said, um, you know you'd say a wiki keeper batsman looks like he's on runs on average is worth about three quarters of a batsman um, the contribution, whereas someone like Gilchrist was actually better than the average specialist batsman. Um, so he was adding so much value as a player. And, and, is, and, you know, he's one of the greatest, but he didn't actually affect the balance of the side the way that someone like uh, Jacques Khalid may have done.
1: That's true, sorry. Uh, I, I just want to clarify on this a little bit because uh, uh, I'm, I'm acutely aware of the fact that Gilkes did bring about a dramatic increase in averages of uh, kicker batsmen. Uh, the question I want to kind of drill on is, uh, was that a change, like, is, there, is it similar to the, the Imran Khan phenomenon that I, that I spoke about a little earlier? Is it because Gilchrist inspired a generation of keepers to be better batsmen? Because then that would have taken a little bit of time. There would have been a lag effect, right? But in this case, it was fairly smooth. It's almost as if the the wicket-keeping batting average rose uh, right alongside Gilchrist's carry-off, which is very much explained by the fact that the the team management uh, started changing their approach to keepers. Like England went for Grant Jones, India went for Didas, for instance. Uh, So in this even before Gilchrist could inspire a generation of keepers to be better batsmen, the team management started, you know, kind of compromising a little bit on wicket-keeping skills for the sake of better batting. Is,
0: did, is that something that makes sense? Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, think that's... Um, yeah, sorry, you go, Aj. No, you go first. <laughs> yeah, and no, I was just going to say, yeah, you're right. Like, yeah, the... Um, it would have taken a while for people to be you know, inspired and then continue that. But it also, like you said, the management started to look at um, wicket keepers who could uh, be better contributors. So it, it so like Art said, I agree with Art. As great a value as Gilchrist was to Australia, he didn't affect uh, impact the Australian selection as much or their balance. But what he did was he affected the rest of the world um selection criteria like the rest of the world you know started going for the um, um you know decent keepers who could bat better than like top top quality keepers who weren't really good at batting and uh, i'm guessing there's a question about saha and parts here
1: uh no i mean i uh, i also think punt is not a bathroom was made to keep so punt is also a genuine keeper uh that's
2: a slightly different equation uh, uh I mean, Mahesh, actually, I think I'm not clear. I may have a disagreement slightly on this one. I'm not clear that Gilchrist did inspire people because I, think, I don't think, he, again, he's just a freak of nature. He, he, as much as he inspire, you can't, um, in such a short time period, you can't, um, people may try and copy him, but you can't get a player like, of that quality. But I think in general, it was already happening, like you said, outside of Gilchrist. Even if you, if you move away from test cricket, the emphasis on keeper batting was already there. And, and people were starting to shortchange on the keeper to improve the batting. You know, you remember the Indian one-day side, for example. Um, Rahul Dravid was made to keep. That kind of a thing. Um, in one-day cricket, it
1: was happening for a while. I mean, even yeah, uh, the, yeah. the most overblown uh, impact of Kalutarna, for instance, thanks to Tony Gregg's uh, hype. But, but the yeah. fact is, in, in, I mean, even before the Junior Murray, for instance, play opened the batting in Australia for West Indies. So, in yeah, one-day cricket, it was already changing. Uh-huh.
2: But in yeah, best cricket... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, Junior Murray, I remember his, uh, that was a pretty poor experiment in South Africa where um, I think Clayton Lambert and Philo Wallace tried to slog Donald and Pollock around and then they'd run out of openness. So they just sent this guy, Junior Murray, up to open. It's, uh, and yeah, I mean, he did he open he in one day quite well well. in
1: a, in a tie series in, in, uh, in Australia. Yeah. He did quite okay. One day cricket, that. yeah, you're right. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, he did, he did.
1: But in test cricket, in fact, you're right about test cricket as well, that uh, there was a phase of keepers like Boucher was a better batsman than Richardson and uh, McCollum make, make his debut. McCullough made his debut
2: around 2003, 2004? Yeah, How but was he, was not, uh,
1: he was not someone who, who saw Gilchrist and started getting his bat and batted better. He must have grown up as, as this genuine batsman who also is a genuine keeper. So in the sense, it was all, already a theme that was developing in cricket and Gilchrist happens to be the poster boy right in the middle
0: of
2: it. Yeah, it might be just one of those things that evolved over time, a bit like uh, outfielding. You know, outfielding now is far better than it was um, in the olden days. Um, I think slip fielding is probably worse, but outfielding is certainly better. So it could be something where it's just something that's expected now. Um, You know, in the old days in England, you could get a player like a Bob Taylor who didn't get to play that much for England, but he only averaged 16, I think. And someone like Bob Taylor... Today wouldn't make the site. You just wouldn't pick a keeper who averaged sixteen with a bat. Doesn't matter how good his keeping is. You just wouldn't pick him. So it's a it's a cultural change, as well.
1: Yeah, that's precisely the point I was trying uh, driving at. That Gilchrist not only uh, like, in fact, I don't know how who uh, said that the fact that he didn't disrupt the balance of Australian team, but dis- he disrupted the rest of the teams
2: is so apt, which is exactly what happened.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> I mean, the number of times he destroyed teams from when Australia
0: were five down. That's unbelievable. Uh, do you want some um, interesting stats about Gilchrist? Yes, Just please. Uh, yeah, so he, uh, everyone knows about his batting average, close to forty-eight, and like you know, he was averaging over sixty, almost at half a mark, and averaging you know, fifty-five plus, and all that. Everyone knows about these things. But two of my favorite stats are related to um, stats on tour. So throughout Gilchrist's career. Australia did not lose a single match overseas, a single tour opener. Every single tour, Australia won the first match of the series. And that's thanks largely to Gilchrist because his batting average in those first tests of the series was 72 for a wicketkeeper. And he made 100 in every three innings for a guy batting at number seven. Let me reiterate. He made 100 every three innings on the first test of the tour. And um, when, he, when he was batting second, which means Australia already fielded it, it was 90-plus. He made 100 every second innings, And he averaged 60-plus um, in every continent. I mean, New Zealand falls under the fifth continent, yes. That's my, like, one of the favourite stats about why Australia was so successful on tours, um, in addition to Macquarie and Shane Um outside of India for one. Um, so... That's fine. And the second stat was that um, how many innings he took for every 100, his frequency was almost as good as Steve Smith on tour. His, his um, frequency of hundreds on um, overseas test matches are better than um, Alan Border, Steve, Ball, and name anyone. Only three Australians have better um, frequency than Gilchrist Don Bradman, Neil Harvey, and Steve Smith. So that's the sort of freak he was. And my last bit of stat is that um, out of his uh, test hundreds, 11 of them came in second, third, and fourth innings. Um, In eight of those, Australia were trailing, and the average trailing number was 175. So eight of his 11 hundreds came, and Australia was effectively five for negative 175. And (laughs) out of the three times Australia had a lead, um, two of them were like 15 or 20 or even 40. The only time Australia had a lead when he made a second, third, fourth innings 100 was that, like a significant lead, was um, that 2006 Ashes Test uh, when he just went bananas for the second fastest 100. So that's the sort of player he was. And um, I guess that's the sort of impact probably influenced the rest of the world to um, look at their way of selection. So, yeah, anyway, I just thought there were some really fascinating numbers.
1: Arj already answered this question, but Ravi, you have not. Would you consider wicket-keeping, bats, wicket-keeping batsmen as all-rounders? In that case, would you, would you invite uh, a comparison with Sobers and Imran for someone like uh, Sangakara or
0: Gilchrist? Um, I, I don't consider them uh, a proper all-rounder, but um, at the same time, maybe I'm sort of in the middle of considering them proper and not at all. I think Arj might be on the not at all sort of category, but yeah, it's very difficult to call them a proper all-rounder because um, it's not you know it's not binary like you know, who's better keeper, who's better batsman. It's about the overall value. And I'll quickly use an example of uh, Saha and um, um I think the batting average difference is only eight. I think it's like thirty and thirty-eight or something. It's a small sample size for a shot, but if you look at the runs per test, which is, it's all about you know, individual brilliance is reflected in the averages. But at the end of the day, it's a team game. It's all about the team contribution. It doesn't matter if someone makes 100 runs out twice and the other one makes 70 runs, but better twice, but not out once. You might have an average of 70 and the other guy would be 50, but other guy made 30 more runs for the team. So obviously, it, you know, it depends on the batting position and opportunities. So it's about team contribution. And when it comes to that, I... I um, think off the top of my head, I'm not 100% sure, but I think Pant runs for test is like 60 plus and Saha is 33 or something. So it's a massive difference. And uh, we don't have wicket-keeping metric, but recently saw someone saying against spin, um, Saha concedes something like negative two runs test and, um, like per test and Rishabh like negative eight per test. Just based on numbers, it's not much bigger difference. So um not talking about conditions you know, in India or outside India, but in general, I would be inclined to pick Rishabh uh, personally. But So doesn't mean I'm thinking they are all-rounders or not? I don't know. I don't really have a straightforward answer, to be honest. Um, I don't think they're genuine all-rounders like the batting and bowling all-rounders, but I think you have to look at the overall value as a cricketer and... Which sort of implies they're all-rounders. So I'm sort of contradicting myself, but I'm sort of in the neutral there. But oh, um,
2: right. just to chip in, sorry, Mahesh, one quick thing. Just to chip in, one trend I have noticed which links um, all-rounders with wicketkeepers, so or players who can who are doing two things, is that their primary skill often tends to be slightly underrated because of the secondary skill. I've kind of noticed it. So you know, you forget that. I remember when Matt Pryor was playing for England, people forgot that he was actually a 40-averaging batsman and could have probably played inside as a batsman, arguably. Um, or, you know, Sobers, as Rav correctly says, is the second greatest batsman. But people often don't, don't classify him in, as, a, as a batsman. I remember, for example, Richie Benno was picking his 11. And um, he picked Sobers, of course. And then he was coming to the second all-rounder. And it was a straight-out shootout between, like, you know, Imran Khan, uh, I think it was Ian Botham, probably uh, Hadley, etc., and he went for Imran Khan, which is fine. But then when he came to the bowlers, Hadley didn't get a shot to compete for a bowling spot. So it's almost like he had been put in the box as an all-rounder. And it meant that his primary skill had been underrated.
1: Well, that's very true. That's uh, it's particularly about Hadley, right? That's, uh, in fact, it affects Hadley more than anybody else, I think. Uh, like when you're talking about Callis, despite, it's a very similar equation, right? He's a phenomenal batsman and a... And, uh, a more than handy bowler, but not necessarily a frontline bowler. And similar case, uh, mirror image of that for Hadley. But people are always willing to concede Callis as a batsman as well as an all-rounder. But with Hadley, he always gets undersold, uh, short-sold as a, as a bowler alone.
2: Yeah, definitely. And um, I'd argue even Gilchrist, as much as people rate him, people as a pure batsman, Where that's why Rav Stats was so interesting, because as a pure batsman, you don't really put him up there with with the very best, but he's not that far off. I mean, you know, based on Rav Stats and in general, from what I've watched and seen and studied, Gilchrist is, as a pure batsman alone, if he couldn't keep at all, he'd still be a phenomenal player. Absolutely. He would have been the second best batsman best in the team after
0: Ponting. I mean, some could even argue on tours, he was probably a better batsman. I mean, not probably, he was a better batsman. He averaged more than Ponting. He made um, more hundreds, uh, more frequently, he made hundreds than Ponting on tours. So. He didn't, he didn't. really have to do much in Australia. I mean, you have a batting lineup of, um, you know, Hayden, um, Lang, of Ponting, Martin. Everyone was really good at home. And um, I, I remember not, not for this, but I prepared some data for something else. I and mean, throughout Ponting's career, Australia's top seven batting average. This happens to include Gilchrist. Was forty-five. You know how many other teams didn't even have a forty-five averaging batsman, a single batsman. This is a collective top seven batting average. Throughout Ponting's career, for two decades, it's not like you speak or anything, they had a top seven batting average of 45. That's insane. And that's partly because, you know, at home they were phenomenal. And most of them are very good overseas as well. But I think Likris was probably the best Australian batsman in that time, um, outside of Australia. Fucking other teams, I, I think even Australia themselves
1: would
2: have liked to ration it out between generations For sure. I mean, Darren Lehman was a phenomenal batsman. He averaged about 65 plus for Yorkshire. And I remember just an outstanding batsman. Just couldn't play enough tests for Australia. And not just him, Stuart Law, Brad Hodge, you name it. There were some class players who didn't get to play enough for them. and Would have walked into their team over the last 10 years.
1: Yeah, even Markov made uh, his debut pretty late. Michael Hussie, of course, made it extremely late.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the okay. second 11. Yeah, yeah sorry.
1: Moving on, uh, I am. We could pick uh, our favorite all-rounders or whatever, but I want to make it a little interesting uh, for for our two guests. So, how about picking an all-rounders eleven, but not just eleven best all-rounders, but all-rounders playing in their positions, so from openers to to new ball bowlers.
0: Okay. Uh, well, wow! That's it's kind of interesting. Uh... Um, okay, I think we should start with the obvious choices for the top-tier batsmen and bowlers among the all-rounders that we have. Um, let's keep the openness for now. Um, it's a bit tricky, so we'll come back to that at the end. So let's start from number three. Uh, as I already made it clear, it's going to be Sobus. His career average at number three was 72. And um, you know, he's, as I said, he's, in my opinion, uh, he's easily the second-best uh, batsman ever. Um, um, Arj would agree with everything apart from the word easily, um, and then um, number four would be Callis. He's the second best batsman of all the genuine all-rounders. So I would have service at three and Callis at four, and I'll uh, let Arj pick the pace bowlers.
2: I mean, yeah, going with uh, Rav's logic for me, it's it's I want to pick my best bowlers for the lineup. For the, you know, the, the out-and-out best bowlers. So Richard Hadley walks in for me, number, you know, he's one of the bowlers. Imran Khan walks in. And my third selection for that would be Sean Pollock. So you'd probably have them batting. Imran would bat higher than the other two. And uh, you'd probably go Imran, Pollock, Hadley. So you, I'm guessing we go Imran, eight, Pollock, nine, Hadley, ten. Um,
0: and yeah, Rav, if you want to pick some of the spots. Some other yeah, so that's Imran 8, Pollock 9, and Hadley 10. Uh, I might want to mention that something about Pollock I think we did uh, earlier. Uh, by the end of 2003, having played a lot of test matches, I can't remember off the top of my head, close to 80 maybe, his batting average was almost 35, and his bowling average was a phenomenal 20 for Sean Pollock. And, yeah, so he's a lot better batsman and a lot better baller than what he ended up with There's an overall number. Even those were still good enough. Um, anyway, moving on, so that leaves me with uh, number five, six, and seven. Uh, I won't pick the batting order yet, but keeper Gilchrist walks in, no contest. Um, two batting all-rounders or batsmen, I'm going to go with Keith Miller at number five. Um, just a little bit of a 12 with Keith Miller. Like I said earlier, he um, um, started at 18. His first class cricket before the war in 1938 or something yeah early 1938 and he made 181 as an 18 year old in a first class uh, match and um then he played for three years um, and then the war happened and uh, when he first played in the victory test in 1945 he's almost you know, almost missed uh, almost not quite 30 in his late 20s he only had bought seven overs in his first-class career. This is he's almost, you know, in his late 20s, he only delivered seven overs in his, uh, his first-class career, and he had one wicket before the war. And the 1945 victory chess, someone flicked the ball to him, you know, in the nets or something, and then I was like, oh, this guy's quick. And then he suddenly became a more of a bowling all-rounder and, in fact, ended um, his career as Australia's best bowling average for someone with 150-plus test wickets as a pace bowler. And uh, since his retirement, only two players um, had a better average than him. Uh, that was Glenn McGrath and uh, Alan Davidson. So imagine someone starting as a specialist batsman at 18. This is not, you know, one of those funny selections like when they selected Steve Smith as a spinner. Uh, despite him averaging 50 in first-class cricket with the bat, it was like desperation. So this is a proper specialist batsman becoming the third-best bowler in terms of averages for Australia. So, yeah, Keith Miller was a very, very talented batsman, and uh, so I'll pick him at number five. And uh, number six, I might bat Gilchrist at six, and my other batting all-rounder would be Ian Botham. I know his overall stats weren't that great, but he was technically correct batsman when he wanted to be, although most of the highlights we probably see were him uh, hitting over third man for in heading way and stuff. So um, I don't think... I should pick both them, but yeah, my three would be that. I think this is probably the one disagreement we would have. So mine would be Miller, Botham, Gilchrist for five, six, seven. 6 um,
2: I mean, when you say disagreement, I would say Keith Miller, for sure. No question about it. He walks in. Um, Botham, I mean, was a phenomenal cricketer um, as, a, as an all-rounder, but he, he really dropped off in the second half of his career. I mean, in the first 25 matches before he got made captain, He was an unbelievable all-rounder. He made 600s, averaged about 40. He took about 139 wickets, so basically something like five and a half wickets per match at an average of 18. I mean, he was just... And also, he was the ultimate kind of way that you imagined an all-rounder. You know, he would uh, bat in your top six, uh, aggressively score runs, and then was a strike bowler, and, you know, this can, you know, there's that famous match, uh, Jubilee, uh, Golden Jubilee match um, against India, the one-off match in 1980. Pretty much sums up Ian Botham at his peak, you know, took 13 wickets, um, wickets in both innings. Um, and then when England were in trouble at 58 for five, he comes in and then smash, uh, hits 100. And off the field, he then enjoys himself even more with drinks every night. So, I mean, he was a kind of the stereotype of your, your ultimate all-rounder. And he was the one guy out of all of them that could do both at the same time. Um, you know, he's the only one, he did five wickets and a hundred runs in the same test five times. And, uh, I don't think anyone else even did that more than twice. Um, so he had some phenomenal attributes, but he doesn't make my side. I, it's a tough one. You can't really, after saying all that to leave him out, you can't, I don't think we need his bowling given we have the other three, three guys and then we've got so much bowling anyway. Um, it's tough to compare eras, eras, and you know, obviously I didn't see some of the past players like Aubrey Faulkner was a final rounder, um, early 1900s, and to, to sort of um, he's a potential potentially was a better batsman than both them. So you could go with him for number six and back Gilchrist at seven. Um it's a tough one. I mean, I think I'd probably edge towards Faulkner, but I can see the merits of both them as well. Um so where are we? We've got um
0: so we the openers and a
2: spinner, yeah. All right, so I, maybe I'll cover the openers. So opening openers, um, for me, openers is an interesting one because there haven't been that many opening batsmen who, who are effective bowlers. And I think there are three, three real contenders for this. I would say Eddie Barlow, who was a fantastic player um, and didn't look the most talented, but was just always effective and had a very good attitude. And then we go for, and then there's Vinu Mankad, And there's uh, Trevor Goddard. Now, Eddie Barlow, I think I'm going to disqualify just because we're going to pick this team based on their their test records. And Barlow, unfortunately, didn't get to play because he played some test matches, but he didn't probably get to take enough wickets because of the um, apartheid stopping South Africa. So Barlow, I think he took something like 40 wickets. So I think we should probably leave him out. But he he showed his his, um, talents in the... Uh, you know, when England played the rest of the world in 1971, he took a lot of wickets and at a low average. Um, and he was a fine opening, fine batsman as well. So, And he, he, he served Derbyshire even when he was past his prime at 36. He, he played pretty well for Derbyshire. So Barlow, it would be nice to have him in, but I think he's disqualified. So I'm going to go for, that leaves Vinu Mankad and Trevor Goddard. Now, uh, Mankad is kind of, uh, <laughs> that was that story where uh, Sewag famously asked to who Vinnie Mankad was, but he, is an out, he was an outstanding player at a time where um, India really were a weak side. And um, he was kind of, you know, India's first ever test victory um, against England. You know, he took um, 12 wickets, I believe, something like 12 wickets and uh, eight in, in, innings. And then uh, India's first series victory when they beat Pakistan 2 1, he took. Um, I think 13 wickets in one of the tests, uh, eight wickets in, another, in one innings, in another, t- uh, in another, eight wickets in another test. Um, and he also, uh, the, the, the next two Indian victories, so the first, I think pretty much the first five victories India ever had in test matches, he was an influencer. So the next two against New Zealand, he got double centuries in both of them. So he, and he averaged 40 as an opener, which is a lot better than his overall career number. So he, for me, comes in as an opener and a slow left arm bowler. Um, And the other opener is Trevor Goddard, who um, was part of that 1970 side that whitewashed uh, or beat Australia 4-0. He was, his opening, his numbers aren't that great. I mean, he only averaged 34 as an opener, but he was very technically correct. Um, Very good at seeing out the new ball. Only made 100, but got quite a few 90s. Um, And a very, very good uh, left-arm bowler. Very the most economical one of the most economical i think conceded about one and a half runs and over averaged about i think 26 or something so and offers left more left arm variety um for the attack um goddard sadly you know i mean he 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 decided in 1970 he was going to retire he was quite old by then and his batting had dropped off and then he was con- you know he was kind of harshly left out of the final test um so, yeah, I'll, I'll pass
0: over to Rav on the spinner selection. Um, uh, before I pick the spinner, I just want to say something. Maybe it's a controversial subject, shouldn't touch it, but, uh, you know, about the mankid things uh, related to run-out. But one thing I just wanted to mention is that when he first ran out Bill Brown in a tour match before the test that, you know, that got, I don't know, um, in that um, game, it was against Australia 11. So it was pretty much an Australian team, although it wasn't a test match. Uh, Australia was set a target of 203 runs under two hours. Um, sorry, Australia was set a target of two something, I can't remember, under two hours, 251. And two and a half hours, sorry. And um, so Manket ran Bill Brown out and then Australia were none for 60 or something at the time. And a lot of people talk about that thing, but they forgot that Manka took 8 for 84 in two hours against a, you know, almost all-time great Australian team. It wasn't the full test team, but it was an Australian 11 team. And, yeah, so he was a phenomenal spin baller, I think. And, uh, you yeah, uh, know, maybe we won't need his bowling here, but that 8 for 80 should be talked about a lot more than the run out. I think that should be
1: a phenomenon like that where you take a flurry of wickets when time is running out, should be called man rather than the stupid thing.
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely. At least, at, least, at least he has a, a test named after him. The, the Lord's test where India were being um, demolished and he, he took uh, wickets. He took five wickets and made, uh, I think, 180 in the second innings and 70 in the first innings. A phenomenal performance.
0: Yeah, I, I, we, we wrote an um, article about uh, on Bill Brown's birthday about... But you know, brilliant two gentlemen, both of them are, I and mean, um, yeah, you can check that out later. Anyway, so for my spinner, there's some tough competition with you know, like the likes of um, Ashwin and Chadeja. Uh, Ashwin's wicket taking skills are phenomenal, and uh, but I'm biased towards wrist spinners, and I want a captain, you know, I'm an old, like top top quality captain who can manage these um, high profile cricketers well. So I'm going to go with uh, the great Richie Benno. Like I said earlier, if you look at his overall um, stats, it might, sta- it might not stand out. But if you start looking at from the time uh, when Keith Miller retired in Karachi in 1956, from that point onwards, from a bowler who was taking two te- wickets per test, Richie Benno went to, uh, became a bowler that took five wickets per test and six wickets per test in away matches. Um, phenomenal weight of five wicket holes in that period every third of three and a half innings, and uh, he was a pretty useful batsman as well. He made three test hundreds, two of them in one series, very first series after Keith Miller retired. You know, he uh, sort of played under Keith Miller's shadow, larger-than-life fighter pilot, all-time great cricketer. But the first tour after the Asian swing in 1956 when they went to South Africa, Beno made 300-plus runs uh, at 55 and took um, 30 wickets at 22 or something. And in the history of cricket, there's only been three instances of a cricketer taking 30 wickets and scoring over 300 runs. Obviously, that favours bowling all-rounders. But still, that's phenomenal. Only three people ever managed that, other being both them in 1981 and some um, uh, George Giffen in 1894 or 5. Anyway, um, so I think Beno is very good. And also, we were talking about test cricket, but it's worth mentioning in a strong Australian uh, competition, majority of it. Uh Beno made um twenty odd hundreds in first class cricket in two hundred and fifty games. So that's almost like one every eleven matches. You don't do that without being a useful bat. So yes, um Beno would be number eleven. So if we sum up, we have agreements on ten. So Binumankid, Trevor Goddard, Sobers at three, Callis at four, Miller at five. Um I would have both of them. Um, um, I think I would have Faulkner at six, or we can switch around with Gilchrist. Killy at seven, Imran at eight, Pollock at nine, Hadley at ten, Benno at eleven. Um, I'll probably have a couple of as the twelfth man. He could come in for Benno on a uh, pace-friendly tracks and he was a brilliant uh, fielder and a brilliant team man from you know, my recollection of things. Excellent. That's a phenomenal team, and more importantly, a
1: very brief uh, uh, biographical sketches of all those players, uh, uh, particularly for, for younger listeners. I think that, that would probably give them the, the incentive to go and read about these great great cricketers and their great exploits. Uh, yeah, before asking you guys to do this, I wanted to do it myself, just to know that theoretically it's even possible, and, and the fact that you could still end up with a decent team. So uh, I'm just going to match my team against yours. Most of the entries are the same. Probably three differences. One, I've gone for Shakib at, uh, at five instead of uh, Keith Miller. I haven't gone for both of them. Uh, I've gone for Imran, Pollak, Hadley for sure. Instead, I've gone for uh, uh, Davidson because uh, Davidson is a cricketer that, uh, that I was personally fascinated with because I discovered him very late in life. Uh, there was no doubt in my mind that Vazi Makram is the greatest left hander of all time. And this was like when I was very, very young. And uh, I saw Alan Wilkins asking, but what about Davidson? And I thought, this guy's gone berserk. How can you even compare anybody with Vaseem? With and then I dug up uh, his numbers and I read about him. And then there was also the documentary on the tight test. Not the tight not the test per se, but, uh, uh, but the whole series of uh, the, the 1960 series. And the way he talks about that series, oh God, he's such a sport. He's talking as if he was a fan rather than a, a participant in that. Uh, so I, I just found everything fascinating about his personality and his numbers are damn good. His bowling average is so bloody impressive that it is almost impossible to even say that Versi Makram is definitely better. So just purely for the fact that I discovered him late in life and, and ever since I've been fascinated with it, i will probably pick Davidson there. And a parochial pick uh, for the spinner, I, I'll go with Ashwin because he's from my city and uh, and the average is more than five weeks per test.
0: That's exactly what I want from my uh, main, main frontline bowler. That's an excellent team. I'm glad you mentioned Davidson because uh, (laughs) I'm arguably the biggest fan of Alan Davidson. I would have uh, sneaked him in the team, but um, um, Arj sort of reminded me, well, this is about test cricket. He hasn't got a test hundred. You can't pick him. So, (laughs) I yeah. I'm I'm a a huge fan. (laughs) Uh, And um, I just want to add one more thing. He was a phenomenal swing bowler and um, other than Sidney Barnes, who played before the First World War, um, so in the last 100, 105 years, no bowler with 150 test wickets had a better bowling average than Davidson when he took the new ball. Not even Malcolm Marshall. There are only two players who average less than 20, 21 in fact. Um, Davidson 19.25 and Malcolm Marshall 19.7. And then you have Ambrose McGrath, um, Truman, Imran averaging around 21, 22 so that's uh, he was an amazing new ball bowler i mean he could ball spin as well like he did in um, in the subcontinent so it's a great pick and uh I think, yeah um, it, it's it's yeah it could be anyone like ashwin now his wicket taking skill phenomenal and um yeah I, like i said um that's a great team I, i'm thinking if this Levin plays against the rest of the world i think they would give them run for their money i mean you got Sobus, you got Imran, Pollock, Hadley, Gilchrist.
2: I guess opening batsmen, but, we, may, we may be slightly weaker than alternatives.
0: I think only I mean, the opening good players batting are number yeah. five, six, maybe. Yeah. But the rest of it, the number seven onwards and number three and four, you can't really argue against it.
1: Okay, excellent. I think I had fun uh, picking the 11 and also having this whole discussion. Thanks a lot for joining, guys. And, and uh, I've been fascinated by some of the numbers that you've thrown up on your Twitter handle and, and uh, some of the numbers that you've shared here as well. I will certainly uh, add uh, their index and, and particularly the top 10 uh, that they've uh, discussed here to the show notes. And I'll also add uh, other numbers that they've uh, brought about throughout this uh, in the form of an Excel or, or, a, or an image. Um, yeah, thanks a lot, uh, Rav, and thanks a lot, uh Ash, for joining us. Uh, looking forward to doing more such uh, episodes with you in the future.
0: Oh, thank you, a lot, thank you for having us. Yeah. The India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wide.